We're here to talk about what's next after Serial with the Innocence Project at the University of Virginia School of Law. Can you introduce yourselves? I'm Mario Paya. I'm Katie Clifford. I'm Vanessa Vogler. I'm Jessica Saba. I'm Kristen Sauerbeer. And I'm Deirdre Enright. I'm uh, the director of the Innocence Project Clinic at UVA School of Law, and I am also supervising the pro bono clinic, the Innocence Project Volunteer Group. And I'm Mary Wood with UVA Law School Communications. You listened to the episode along with the rest of the world Thursday. What did you think? Were there any surprises in it for you? I'm always a little surprised at what uh, Sarah Koenig and the serial producers focus on, um, because as Mario and Katie and the team can tell you, um, what ends up being on the show is about an eighth of what we all learned and know. So um, the fact that she brought up an alternate suspect didn't really surprise me, Um, but there's several alternate suspects, so there's not just the one. Mario, Katie? Yeah, I'd I'd second that, and uh, as far as our part is concerned, I'm I'm always interested to see what Sarah chooses to put on as far as how to tell the overall story and whatnot, and hearing from Josh and Don was definitely caught me uh, by surprise as much as probably everybody else, so um, that that was very interesting to hear, Um, but I agree with uh, Deirdre wholeheartedly. Uh, What she chooses to put in is a fraction of, of... what we've had. So I think on the, on the, on the whole scheme of things, that's probably a very good thing. Um, so that, that was also uh, perhaps the most, uh, the most convenient thing because of, um, well, convenient. Uh, you don't really have to worry about privacy issues as the guy has passed away. So uh, that was helpful. I was a little bit surprised, and anybody else um, who agrees or disagrees, it's fine. I think we heard this week that um, Jay expressed to a co-worker being afraid of um, a particular group of people in Baltimore. And um, I didn't know that. And I didn't know, and it, it makes sense to me with our theory that there was someone who did this with Jay, but it wasn't Adnan. Um, anybody else have that reaction? I thought it was interesting uh, that she spoke to um, Jay's co-worker, um, and it was interesting both with him and with Don that these people came forward after the show had already started airing, which I think you have to kind of take into consideration when you're considering what they're saying. But this is kind of new evidence that's come forward in the last couple months after this, the show already started airing. Yeah, I agree with Katie. I kind of was thinking that I was as I was hearing his employee talk about that I didn't really know how much stock to actually put in it considering he's just come forward after this show kind of really took off um, I do think it was interesting though you know if that is true that Jay seemed to be scared of some unknown band outside of the um, video store especially since it kind of it kind of seemed like he was making assumptions that it was Adnan's people or whatever he said but we don't actually know if that was you know who he was actually scared of it's certainly you you know uh, I'm I'm sorry go ahead whoever that was no no I was just thinking that one of the things that this team has had to deal with that will probably never be a factor in most of our cases which is that before we've even filed 
everyone in the world is participating. And so we get information. I get information every day from people. And some of it is excellent information or interesting information. And some of it is redundant, and we already knew it, but but they are trying to help. Um, but it's a whole factor that changes the investigation. And so even though people provide us with information, we still have to go vet it because we don't know the motives for providing the information. Right, everybody? Like, it adds a layer. Yeah. And, and yeah, also, absolutely. there's scrutiny that usually there's no scrutiny until we file. Um, now there's scrutiny all over the place. Yeah. I think there's another problem that that raises as well, and, and this is going to sound like I'm criticizing the uh, investigation, and um, not really, uh, but <laughs> it, it, was a, it was an incomplete investigation back then, which means that there's a lot of leads, such as Josh, who are now left to come forward after it's been made public, so you run into the problem that Katie's been doing. But with this case having so many holes in it as or being such a mess as I think Jim Tram put it on the podcast uh, we have to go through and actually break a lot of new ground on cases on, on leads like this that really when you think about it should have been pursued in the first place that were not and now we have to do it 10 years after the fact with you know memory slippage and everything so um, that, that I think that problem with Josh really exposes that as well, along with what Katie said. I think. It, I mean, I think it goes both ways. I think it's really helpful that these people now, if that now can come forward because they know something is happening with it, and if we are able to tell whether what they're t- saying is true or not, then maybe all this investigation has actually, like, public investigation has helped. But kind of like what Deirdre said, it, it, it cuts both ways because you have to take extra care in vetting it, but it is nice having a lot of extra eyes out there looking for holes in the story. Let's go back a little bit. What did you and the students do to try to find out the truth behind the case? Hmm. Um, I think you, I I want you all to remind me because this all started last year, but when we talked to Sarah originally and she was telling us, oh, she's looking into phone records and she's looking into cell phone towers and she was looking into uh, places that the witnesses said they had been to make sure you could do things in the time allotted. And it sounded to us like the piece that wasn't being addressed at all was who who are the alternate suspects? Who, who do you put in his place? Um, and that's where... Uh, everybody's work on this alternate suspect was so great. And it was actually Mario and the students, you guys should talk about it because that was entirely you all. I just, I did the brilliant thing where I say, let's find an alternate suspect and then they go do it. But then I take all the credit. Go ahead. Actually, actually, I mean, that goes back to something that, I don't know if you realize this or not, but you you taught everybody right when they come into the program. I remember hearing this from you right when I got in at the 1L. First thing you do when you get a case is you look at what's going on in the area and you get a sense for what similar crimes are being committed in the area at the same time, before and after, but approximately the same time. And that was very much this situation. I mean... Sarah came down and Sarah told us initially about another strangulation the year before. You have Hayes' murder, 
and all of a sudden it's a natural progression to see alternate suspects on there. It was just very fortunate that it showed up on a cold case and not something that's a little more um, a little more internal to the police department. But uh, that that just traced back to kind of what should be done in every single case. Right. We also did some digging, I, and I remember thinking this was, uh, it may not have been absolutely relevant or necessary, but was it Sarah that put us on to um, the anti-Muslim um, sentiment at the time? And that, um, because we kept trying to figure out, although he's the ex-boyfriend, he doesn't make a lot of sense as as a suspect, right? He's kind of a good kid, he's kind of an athlete, he's kind of... and. We le- later found these reports about um, explaining, who was it, Vanessa? Somebody talk about that report that says, you know, if for a girlfriend to have broken up with Adnan would be to dishonor him, and that's a crime in the religion, and the only way he could fix a crime like that would be to kill her because, you know, and it went on and on about... Um, explaining to law enforcement why this would be a legitimate case. And in some ways I thought, ah, this is what this is why they pursued this angle is this satisfied them. Right? Am I right? Tell me I'm wrong, I don't care. Uh that wasn't me who found that. I mean someone else can chime well, in here. Vanessa the, um, take credit. The- <laughs> <laughs> I mean I think, I think we found the I'm sorry. No, I, I was just saying, I remember reading that report, but what I got more from the vibe of the the whole anti-Muslim feeling was just that from reading the trial transcript, it seemed his religion in the state's theory seemed to play a pretty pivotal role, which I got more, you know, the feeling of it being a big deal from reading the trial transcripts. But I do remember... Yeah, I agree that with that. Probably. It was a really significant theme throughout the entire second trial, both on the defense and the prosecution, I guess. Which so. is a lot Which is a lot about um, why Adnan and his family and the mosque community have been, they were very um, organized and supportive at the time, and they've remained very staunch. And, and this is part of why, right, is that they think this is sort of the microcosm of what's happening in our country right now is somehow we're all getting blamed for these the extremist view. And, you know, Adnan was American, and he was in high school, and he was smoking pot and playing lacrosse, and how in the world could we all think that he would go kill his girlfriend when he wasn't even behaving like a good Muslim, right? Why would he do that? Um, but anyhow, they've remained very, very supportive, and to the tune of they're even deciding now whether they want to put together... Uh, reward money in um, and offer it to the community for favorable evidence for a non, which kind of, it's an interesting issue, you know, police do it all the time when a, tri- when a crime happens, but you don't usually get a victim or a, a defendant's family offering it for exculpatory information. Can you tell us more about the steps for filing a motion for forensic testing and what the process of testing is like? Katie, Mario, you want me to? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, we're starting to learn how to do it for Maryland um, <laughs> for the first time. Uh, so they been... have a statute. and Go ahead. I'm sorry? No, no, no. I was going to just give oh, Mary the background. So this week when the students are taking exams and trying to go home 
Um, I was making everybody have team meetings in my living room so that we could call the state's attorney's office and uh, do conference calls. And Katie and Mario got subjected to that um, until they just had their parents call me to make them go home. So anyhow, Katie, go, go ahead and talk about the statute and what Mar how Maryland does it. It's really more of a request than a formal filing, it seems. Yeah, so they have a they have a DNA testing statute which requires um, that you file a motion to test, um, which the team wrote earlier um, this semester. And when you file it, then the uh, the state attorney in Maryland has the opportunity to respond to it, or they so they can either oppose it, or they can join it, or they can kind of just take no action on it. Then it should hopefully go for a hearing if they do oppose it or take no action on it, at which point um, there would be a hearing on it and the judge would decide whether to not let the motion go forward, whether to test the evidence. Um, and the petitioner who wants the evidence tested would then bear the cost of having all that evidence tested. Mario, is there some stuff to look yeah. Yep, that, that's, that's my idea too. So I don't. It, I don't think I have anything to add to that. The, um, so. the only thing that I got from that, from our, we had several discussions, and ultimately we got to. There's a person in Maryland in the state's attorney's office who handles DNA exonerations, and then there's a person who handles non, and then there's a person who does both. Whatever. There's several different people, and I got the sense that what he was saying is, if you can make a reasonable argument that these results would exculpate you. Um, either entirely or in part, they would probably consent to that. But if he gets the sense that you've gone on some fishing expedition that even if the results were favorable couldn't do you any good, that's when he's going to, you know, say no. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, um, an added factor to that is the placement of the evidence throughout the crime. So if the evidence is too separated from the crime or something, they would probably object to that as well. But if the evidence is at the, uh, or even close to the center of the crime, that, that would factor into their decision-making. So if they grant the motion, what would happen next? Um, he said uh, that there are two labs that they use usually, um, and so you first have to find out if the different labs can do the tests that you're requiring. So, for instance, the rape kit on the victim. Um, a lot of people don't seem to be aware of that because they don't look at this crime as a rape crime. Um, but that's simply because they decided not to call it a rape crime, right? Nobody tested the kit and said, okay, there is nothing here. Um, so that would be an ordinary DNA test. But then there's two hairs that don't belong to Adnan, that were on the victim, and they don't belong to the victim either. That would require mitochondrial DNA testing. We have to figure out if their lab in Maryland or Bodie, which is the other lab they use a lot, can do has the protocols to do that kind of testing. And then there's the rope that was near her body, and that would probably require touch DNA testing, right, to see if there's epithelial cells on the rope somewhere that would be relevant. I don't know if they all do touch DNA, so that's going to be our next figuring out who the different evidence has to go to and sending it there. But it sounded um, to me like the state's attorney was saying, finding the evidence, getting the lab sheets, um, showing that everything is preserved, which we've already done, and then 
coming up with your argument about why this would exculpate Adnan, which we've already done. So like that seemed to be the biggest time barriers, and those are done. So well, after we get it granted, I think it all moves relatively quickly. And who whose DNA are you testing against? So we will want to have, if there's a profile generated from the nuclear DNA or from the rope, we would want that profile put into CODIS to see if there's a hit, a cold case hit. Um, even if there wasn't a cold case hit, if there was a if there was male DNA on the rope or or on the victim in the victim on the hair, I think that goes a long way to saying it wasn't Adnan. <laughs> um, we don't know who it was, but it wasn't Adnan. Um, and Jay, of course, will want to make sure that he's tested against this. I assume. Do we know this, you guys? Is he in the system? Do we know if he's in CODIS? We don't know it for certain, but we have reason to think he is. Yeah, we think he should be, but I don't know if we know that. Mm -hmm. Because of the things he's been charged with in the past? Correct. I think they also also took his DNA and tested it originally against at least some of the evidence. Not all of it. Right, so they should have it in the original case. Mm Mm-hmm. And somebody remind me, what what's our fingerprint situation in this case? We have a fingerprint. Um, we have a fingerprint on the tape, on the cassette tape, which was in the car. We have a fingerprint on the rearview mirror. And we have a fingerprint on a feminine pad bag, which uh, was found in the car. Uh, there were more fingerprints found, but... The other ones were identified as um, Adnan in the car as being on the insurance card and foil paper in the back, which isn't really much of a surprise considering he drove in the car quite a bit. But the other fingerprints did not come back to Adnan, did not come back to Jay. Um, And uh, we don't know much about them or even if we can, but I don't know much beyond that, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So we, um, we know we had a conversation with Barry Sheck from the New York Innocence Project about this case, and he told us that um, he's had all lots of good luck recently with putting fingerprint profiles into APHIS, which is not something people really do anymore because we all look at DNA as having replaced fingerprints. But, and sometimes you can lift DNA from a, a latent lift from a fingerprint and test that. But he was saying they've been putting stuff into APHIS and getting hits on fingerprints. So um, it's another thing I would like to ask, um, and I don't want people to think I'm on a fishing expedition, but since it's working for them, I feel like we should try to. And what's APHIS? So it's the it's the sort of like the database for fingerprints, right? The CODIS parallel, I guess. So what happens if you get a hit in CODIS? Um, we all go to Boylan Heights and... <laughs> Um, um, well I guess if so there's two ways to go there's the if we get a hit on a known suspect like if it comes back to Ronald Lee Moore right Um, so our Bennett Barbour case in the clinic a couple years ago that was what happened to him it came it came back not Bennett Barbour and it came back this guy over here so it was it was kind of a slam dunk we still filed a writ of actual innocence the attorney general joined. Um, that made everything go quickly, and he was exonerated. Um, if it came back to another person, not a known, you know, like a profile 
and particularly if it, it would be great if we had a profile that like what was on the rope was also what was on is the hair, right? Or something that these two aren't a coincidence. I would argue, and I think we would probably be successful, that, that it was someone and it was a male, but it was an odd none. Um, the worst of all worlds would be nothing off the rope, nothing off the fingerprints, nothing in the perk kit, not, you know. And, and I think given the wealth of DNA material and forensic material, I don't see us getting nothing from all of those sources. It may not give us the conclusive result that we want, but I feel like we're going to get something. Does that seem too optimistic, you guys? I don't like to be optimistic. Especially <laughs> under, the, under the fingernails. Yeah. You, you have to, uh, it, this wasn't mentioned, but how Ronald Lee Moore was identified as the killer was under the fingernails. And especially in a manual strangulation case where you have uh, a young female who's certainly capable of defending herself, I think that's a critical piece of evidence that was not tested at all, period, against anybody in the first time around. Mm-hmm. We're, what is the source of the... Um, is that from an autopsy that we know that they did the um, clippings, or is that just a lab report? With regards to Ronald Lee Moore? No, with regards to that we know they, t- they took her fingernails and kept them. It's from we have it from a lab report. Okay. It, essentially, the lab report says that they clipped them, they kept them, they didn't test them. Right. How unique is this case? And and sort of what I'm interested in is what kinds of larger issues this reveals about the criminal justice system. Ooh, that's anybody's question right there. <laughs> Come on, you guys. I mean, <laughs> so I, uh, I think other people will think it's more unique, perhaps, than we think it is, because this isn't any of our first innocence project cases that we've worked on. I personally have been studying wrongful convictions since my college days. So I guess we're all more used to bad defense attorneys or untested evidence or, sus- or you know, confessions or bad eyewitnesses. So I think for us, it's not as unique or surprising as the rest of the world thinks it is right now. I mean, I think it's good that these problems are coming to light and that people are recognizing there are some serious flaws that someone can be convicted under such a scant amount of evidence. But... I think for us, it's just another case. I don't know that it's that unique or different from the other cases we've worked on. I don't know if someone else can correct me if they think differently. I I certainly agree. Um, I think each case, um, it's all fascinating how the same factors get cast and recast in different cases. But... Um, and in this case, what's a little bit different in this case is that the defense attorney did a lot. She didn't always do the things that we wished she would have done, like test the physical evidence. Um, but I don't know if she'd be ineffective under the standards that we have. Um, and yet, you know, she was disbarred. She was sued by a lot of her clients. Um, we listen on the tapes of her in court, and you... Um, it's not hard to understand why a jury took 
two hours to find him guilty because <laughs> she was um, grating and um, and probably maybe even I somebody somebody slapped me across the face. Maybe she over, <laughs> she might have overdone it, right? She went at Jay too mm-hmm. long, mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah. and you know she got. Uh, she just battled where she didn't need to and lost some big battles. Um, but she, most of our lawyers aren't, they're kind of asleep at the wheel. And she wasn't that. Um, and so it's, it's good that there's physical evidence because we could probably pick away at many things she did wrong, but I don't think she'd be ineffective under Strickland. Um, you guys agree? Yeah. Especially some of the other cases we've seen, I don't think she would meet the bar for ineffective assistance of counsel, which in some ways makes you wonder, but, I mean, there's definitely been attorneys that are worse than her that have, you know, not met that standard. Right, and so um, somebody just give Mary the brief overview on Strickland, the two prongs, and... So... Strickland has, you have to show that the attorney performed deficiently, there was sufficient performance, and you have to show um, that there is prejudice, which is a reasonable probability that the outcome would be different. Did I get that right, Mario? Yeah. So, yeah, deficient performance and prejudice. Um, Yeah, a reasonable probability that whatever the, the attorney was ineffective, with regards to would have changed the outcome um, of the jury, um, which is a pretty high standard because a lot of times you can show that the performance was deficient, um, that, like, she did, she cross-examined someone for too long or she didn't make it clear enough, but then you have to consider that in light of the holistic trial and all of the strategic decisions that she made, and if they find that that would not have prejudiced the jury's verdict, then you still won't meet what the Strickland Ineffective Assistance of Counsel test. It's, uh, Strickland v. Washington is the case. This question is for the students. What did you learn from this? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> quite, quite a bit. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know. Besides speaking about the case, uh, ironically, it's been really interesting and uh, quite the learning experience to see the, um, you know, in, in working with Sarah and in working with um, the folks on the podcast and whatnot and how their work interrelated with our work was um, interesting to see. It was definitely a learning experience for me um, to see how our expect- uh, perspectives were the same and different and how we could work together in that regard. Um and that's not even getting to the merits of the case, but that's probably the first thing that comes to my mind. We did have we um, we had many um, uh, we had many discussions about the their goals in telling a story and our goals in exonerating someone, and how often we were on the same page. But sometimes we came right up against each other, and and we would say we would never do what you're about to do, and. They would say, we cannot do what you want to do. And, um, and it was okay. It worked. But um, it's a challenge. And, and I, I have to be honest, that's not something that they're going to teach in any law school class, period. <laughs> that's, that's definitely the value of the clinic there. 
Right. Certainly had more of, like, actors involved to juggle with. They're in addition to, like, the podcast, like Mario was saying, you have, like, other attorneys um, that we have to work with and attempt to compromise with, and you have um, the people of Reddit and just the, the people with media requests. It just kind of all comes together. Um, and it's a lot different than every other case I think all of us have worked on where we've been um, working in kind of obscurity until we ultimately file something or even until we get something granted. Yeah, I think also with this case, there was so much information and so many different directions that we all thought we could originally go on because we, you know, we first got all the trials and read all over them, and there's just so many things that I think stuck out as being potential problems. So kind of talking with each other and deciding, you know, what to do first, what's more important, was really interesting to me. And then, you know, you go down one hole and you have to keep in mind all this other information that can be pertinent, and it's definitely... It was definitely hard to keep track of, and it was also just the whole idea of strategizing was, I think, taught me a lot. It was um, it was interesting too to be slightly controlled by their serials timeline. Um, so there were things that we pushed for them to wait a little bit so that we could go do them before. Um, and also, of course, we didn't know until episode whatever, three, four, what it was going to be. So we thought it was going to be an hour-long show, and maybe we would be mentioned. Or, you know, we had n- no idea that it would blow up. And then in the blowing up, we got a lot of information we didn't expect to get. But we also got people going and talking to witnesses that we didn't expect them to do. And now we have to factor in that those people might be scared or might have practiced saying no when we go to talk to them. And maybe it'll be just the opposite. Maybe um, everyone wants to be a star and they can't wait. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have access to those two, three, five million people anymore. Um, Do we, Mario? Have you gotten on that? Not quite. Um, I, I have not been very successful on that yet. <laughs> Can you do that over the holidays, please? Sure thing. Thank you. Do, you. do you have any closing thoughts? Does anybody want to say something uh, fantastic about how they would never go to any other law school now because of how great this was? Something like that. <laughs> this isn't something fantastic, but it's something I wanted to say to when you're uh, former questions, Mary, which was it It took us all of the semester last semester just to break down this case before we could start actually writing the motion. And you had asked uh, how we came to the truth of the matter. I mean, the truth of the matter is we're still looking for the truth of the matter. <laughs> but it's a large step forward when we were able to break down the case and be able to comprehend such a, a big case like Jess was saying and then to be able to put that into a motion to hopefully get at the, at the truth of the matter um, was, I guess, what was really important in this case. Yeah, and we are also, I, I was thinking when I was writing something for Mary this morning, I was realizing that, in a sense, we're going back to square one right now and doing the testing that should have been the very first thing that anybody did ever before deciding where to go. And it may be that the testing generates nothing and we've 
you know, we've done nothing except delay a little bit. But really, this is how the investigation should have started, right? From the forensics and then go from there if you don't have any. But this is all kind of reversed. Anyhow, somebody else say something meaningful about their lives in this case. <laughs> I mean, it has definitely been the best experience that I've had at UVA Law thus far, if you wanted me to say that. <laughs> now, can everybody, now, can everybody I mean, say that in a different have, way? It's fun to have our friends and family back home asking us all these questions about the case, and we feel like, you know, we feel like we're making a difference and something that the whole nation's looking at, so we're hoping to do something, you know, good, hoping to help add on. Right. It is interesting to have people interested in what we do all the time, right? Like, if you just told me last year that 5 million people would want to know what we do every day, like, I would say they clearly don't care what we do every day because there aren't, you know, there aren't funds for representing people post-conviction, right? No one even pays people to do that. So, you know, this kind of interest, this level of interest feels... Um, it feels really hopeful to me. Like, maybe we are yeah. underestimating people's interest in mm -hmm. the system. Thank you all for your time. You guys, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Ho, ho, Bye. ho. Bye. 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 Bye, everybody.